You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Your vacancy convener has asked me to uh, come on a number of occasions over the next month. In fact, including tonight, I shall be with you for about, on about five occasions in the next uh, five weeks or so. Uh, mostly here at night in Union Road, but once in the Comfort in the morning. And, and I was thinking of what I could do perhaps by way of um, subjects that would lead into each other and not just single one-off things. And so what I'm going to do is this, and I hope it makes sense. We started off tonight uh, with those words of, of Jesus where he said he had come to seek and to save the lost. I want to base what I have to say on on those words of Jesus and to use a wonderful example of lostness, if you like, the parable of the prodigal son. And try and open it up for you and help you to understand perhaps something more or see something new from it. Then next time I come back, I want to look at a great gospel invitation from Matthew chapter 11 to those who are lost. Then I want to speak of the need for a work of God in the heart of those who are lost, if they're ever to be saved. That's the new birth I'll be speaking about. That's God's work. And then on the last two occasions when I come, I want to speak about the response that we must make if we're ever to be saved to that invitation and to the work of God, and that is the response of repentance and faith. After that, there's a break for a while, and I'll not be back, God willing, until May time. But for these next few weeks then, Those are the things that I want to look at with you, God willing. Now, this is a well-known parable then, the parable of the prodigal son, as we usually refer to it. And it is, as I say, a lovely illustration of Jesus coming to seek and to save the lost. You you know the old phrases, don't you? Uh, It's the real thing, or the real McCoy. Well, you use that around... uh, Macrofelt or not, I've sort of forgotten some of the Macrofelt phrases. I do still remember some of them. The genuine article, you know, that sort of phrase. Something that's real and genuine and not false. With Christianity, as with so many other things, there is the real and the false. There is the real and the imitation. And Jesus, of course, warns us of that, tells us of that in a number of his parables. He tells us of it in the parable, for example, of the wheat and the tares which will grow together. Hard to distinguish the two. Hard to distinguish the true and the false. The parable of the sower. The four different types of ground that the seed was sown onto. The the path, the stony ground, the seed that was sown among weeds, and then the good ground. And only the good ground. And the, the, the growth from that represents true Christianity. All the others were were spurious, were false. The prodigal son parable illustrates some features of true conversion, the beginning of true Christianity. We want to look at that tonight. I want to just say two things before we look at the parable. We know this parable as the parable of the prodigal son, don't we? And yet, in a sense, it's more about the amazing love of the father for his son. But what happened to the son in this parable is indeed a lovely picture of true conversion. The second thing I want to say by way of introduction is this. This parable would have shocked the Pharisees. 
Now, the Pharisees were listening. If, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 15, we read that the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered and said, this man welcomes sinners and eats with, him, with them. That was a criticism of Jesus, and it was one of the most lovely things that they could have said about him. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So the Pharisees were there, and the scribes, the rulers of the Jews, perhaps standing on the edge of the crowd, listening to, as Jesus taught, mostly the, those that the Pharisees would have called tax collectors and sinners. And you know, sometimes we joke about people going to sleep during sermons, don't we? But I tell you, none of them were asleep while Jesus told this story. At nearly every turn, these Pharisees and Jewish rulers would have been amazed and shocked and annoyed by some of the things that Jesus was saying. I, I point those out to you as we go through. I want to look at it under six headings. Some of them are very, very short, so don't, don't be worried about time. But I want you to think with me, first of all, about this son's folly. I think we can all agree that he was very foolish in what he did. Secondly, the rewards of his foolishness, for there were rewards. Thirdly, I want you to notice the turning point in his life, very important. Fourthly, his determination. Fifthly, the reception he received when he came home. And then we'll say a little word, a brief word, about his older brother. Now, I'm sure most of you know the story. You've learned it from your early days, if you were brought up in church circles, taught it in Sunday school, and so on. But let's think of it then under those headings. Firstly, the folly, the foolishness of this, this young man. What lay behind his folly? Let's dig a little bit deeper into what he did. I'm going to say four things about his foolishness here. Firstly, he didn't want to be subject to his father anymore. He had had enough of being around home and doing his father's will and working on the farm. He didn't want that sort of life anymore. He was rebelling against his father. How foolish that was. But you see, that's what sin is, isn't it? Sin is really rebellion against the God of heaven. Jesus told another story one time of, of servants who were left in charge of their master's business while he went away. And when they got him away, they rebelled against him. They said, we will not have this man to rule over us. That's the, that's the attitude of sinners. They may not put it that way, but they don't want a God who will rule over them. They rebel against him. Like Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? And the rulers of the earth uh, shake their fists, as it were, at the God of heaven. Psalm 2 speaks of, of that sort of rebellion. That's what this young man was doing, rebelling against his father. It's the essence of sin, and it's in all our hearts by nature, isn't it? Second, the second thing about his folly, he wanted to live for himself and pleasure. He no longer wanted the dreary work of the, the farm. He wanted to live for himself. He didn't, of course, understand or know our first question and answer to our shorter catechism that man's chief end, man's chief purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's not to live for ourselves. And yet, isn't that the way of the world? This is a, a self-age, isn't it, that we live in? 
not just selfies, those pictures that people take, although they're, they're sort of typical in the sense of the age in which we live. People live for themselves, doing what they want. They don't want to do what the God of heaven wants. This young man didn't want to do what his father wanted. He wanted to live for himself. That's idolatry, putting ourselves before God. Third part of his folly was this. He wanted everything now. He wanted everything now. Isn't that so typical of so many, again, in our society who are just living for now, for this world, for what pleasures and, and things which will please them they can have now. They don't stop to think. They don't want to stop to think about what lies ahead. They certainly don't want to stop to think about death and eternity. I remember having a book in my study with the, 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 this, the title, Death, the Last Thing We Talk About. That's how many of our people live. You look at television today, for example. I hope you don't look at too much of it, for most of it's rubbish, sinful rubbish. And yet, many of our people are living for that sort of thing. How many of our people are lying in front of televisions tonight, looking at nonsense, being amused by sin? They just want pleasure now. They never think of God, or death, or judgment, or eternity. This young man just wanted it all now. He would have got his share of the inheritance when his father died. But he couldn't wait for that. He wanted it now. And the last thing about this folly, he wanted his father to die. Now, you might say, where do you get that from? Where do you get that from? You know how the story begins. The younger, the younger boy said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. When he said that, he was effectively saying to his father, I wish you were dead. Because he would have got the share of the estate, as I said, when the father did die. But he's saying, I can't wait for that. I wish you were dead now. There's a man called um, uh, Kenneth Bailey who spent many, many years in the Middle East and has studied the parables in, in a Middle Eastern context. And, and he makes this comment about this parable. After affirming the presence of a father with two sons, the parable begins with the bequest of the younger. Father, give me my share of the property that falls to me. And Kenneth Bailey goes on to say this. For over 15 years, I've been asking people of all walks of life, from Morocco to India and from Turkey to the Sudan. And that's a, a, a wide area of many countries. I've been asking them about the implications of a son's request for the inheritance while his father was still living? The answer was almost always emphatically the same. As I have noted elsewhere, he says, the conversation runs as follows. Has anyone ever made such a request in your village? No, never. Could anyone ever make such a request? Impossible. If anyone ever did, what would happen? The father would beat him, of course. Why? Because the request means he wants his father to die. That's how that would be seen in a Middle Eastern context. Give me my share of the inheritance, father. 
I wish you were dead. I can't wait for you to die. Can you imagine the scribes and Pharisees listening to this, and they would have been bristling? How dare he? How dare he make that request? What a rascal he is. What an undisciplined child. He deserves a good, am I allowed to say a good thrashing? Which we used to say, but it's probably not PC now, but you know what I mean. He deserves, he deserves to be punished. His folly. He didn't want to be subject to his father. He wanted to live for himself and for pleasure. He wanted everything now, and he wished his father was dead. But here's something else that would have caused those scribes and Pharisees to be furious. It's the very next little sentence. Father, give me my share of the inheritance, the property. So he divided the property between them. The father did what he asked. And those, those scribes and Pharisees would have been fuming at that. They would have been saying to him, I would never have done that. How foolish of him. What this meant was that he took his estate, this father, and he would have divided it into three parts. Why three parts? Well, because the eldest son always got a double portion. So he kept two parts for his eldest son, and he would have given one part, or the, the value of one part, to this younger son. And the Pharisees would have been amazed and horrified that he would have done that. They would have been saying to themselves, I would never have done that. He shouldn't have done that. He should have given him a good earful and telling off and, and not, a, not done what he said. But he did. And he let him go. I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul when he was writing to the Romans and speaks of the sinfulness of the people of his day and people who had turned away from God time after time. And on three occasions, in Romans chapter 1, Paul uses a very solemn phrase. He says, God gave them up. There comes a time when people are so persistent in their wickedness and turn away from God so persistently that God gives them up. It was as if this father, for a while, gave up his son. You want it that way, do you? You want to go into the far country? On you go. Here's your money. It's a very solemn thing when God gives people up. But lest we're too hard on this young man, let's remember that we're all by nature like him in foolish rebellion against the God of heaven. And like him, we're lost by nature. And we need to understand this if we're ever to be saved. Well, secondly, the rewards of his foolishness. Well, you know what happened next, don't you? He went into the far country and he wasted his money and squandered his wealth, we're told, on wild or riotous living, depending on which version you read. And then after he had spent everything, there was a famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need, and he got himself a job with a citizen of that country and found himself sitting among the pigs, wishing he could eat their food. And again, the Pharisees here would have been, oh, they, they would have been hopping if they showed it, I'm sure. Here was a young Jewish man who had sunk to this level, sitting among unclean pigs, wishing he could eat their food? How could it have come to that? But before it came to that, he did have his reward. He had the rewards 
of his foolishness. He had his pleasures. He had money to spend. He had friends while he had the money. After he had spent everything, those friends disappeared. No money, no friends. But he enjoyed himself, I'm sure, didn't he? The older brother accused him of wasting his wealth on prostitutes. Now, whether that was the older brother just uh, uh, sticking the knife in, as it were, or whether there's anything to it, I don't know. But he certainly wasted his substance in wild living and had a good time, I'm sure, for a while. You remember what the writer to the Hebrews said about, Mo about Moses? Moses chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. There are pleasures in sin. Many of our young people are out there tonight trying to find them. And maybe they think they're having a good time, enjoying themselves with parties and, and drinking and all sorts of things. But it's only for a season. It's only for a season, as it was with this young man. The money ran out, the pleasure ran out. That's the way of the world, isn't it? Pleasures for a season. But there was that immediate reward for his foolishness. John Newton wrote a lovely hymn, Glorious Things of the Earth Spoken, Zion, City of Our God. And in it he says this, Solid joys and lasting pleasure none but Zion's children know. Oh yes, for a little while he had the rewards of his foolishness, the pleasures of sin for a season. But then, thirdly, comes the turning point in his life. You find it in verse 17 if you have your Bible open there. When he came to his senses. The authorized version says, when he came to himself. And he began to reason with himself. And he thinks back home, how many of my father's servants have food to spare. And here I am, starving to death. And he resolves to go back home to his father. And he prepares his speech. And it's a speech of repentance and faith. He realizes folly and he repents. He says, I go back home and I say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. You notice what he puts first there? I have sinned against heaven. Because sin is first and foremost against God, isn't it? Joseph knew that. Do you remember the story of Joseph in Egypt in Potiphar's house? Do you remember that story? He was chief steward in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar was away in business, and one day Potiphar's wife found Joseph in the house and sought to tempt him to immorality, and he refused. Then can he flee? But he said to her, how can I do this thing and sin against God? Now, he would have been sinning against Potiphar. He would have been sinning against Potiphar's wife. He would have been sinning against himself. But first and foremost, it was against God. David said the same thing after his adultery with Bathsheba. Against you, he said to God, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in, in thy sight. Have you ever wondered about that? He had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against her husband Uriah. He had sinned against his people. He had let them down. But first and foremost, he had sinned against God. This is very different from the young man who left home. Can you picture him walking away from home with his 
pockets bulging with the money that his father had given him and a spring in his step. He was off to have a good old time. Filled with pride, perhaps. No pride here. I have sinned. No excuses. Holding his hands up against heaven, against you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. What a change in this young man. It's a turning point in his life. These are words of true repentance, aren't they? And as well as that, not only was he repenting, but he was hoping and believing and trusting, because these are words of faith as well. He was hoping for his father's mercy, hoping and trusting that when he went back home, his father would receive him. In repentance, we turn from our sin. In faith, we turn to a merciful God and trust him. Otherwise, we would despair. But the prodigal did both. He repented and believed. This is how the Christian life must begin, men and women, with these two things that always go side by side. True repentance and true faith. That's what the Apostle Paul said uh, when in Acts chapter 20 and verse 21, he said, Everywhere I go, I preach repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope to look at those in more detail uh, in about a month's time with you. The fourth thing is determination. Where do I get this from, you might say? Remember the Philippian jailer asked the question, the very important question, what must I do to be saved? And in one sense, of course, the answer is there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. But there is something we, we must do if we're ever to, to be saved, not to earn salvation, but by way of response to the call of the gospel. We must return to our Father in true repentance and faith. And he did this at this time, and he did it with determination. How do I know that? Where was he when he came to his senses? He was in a far country, far away. His tummy was empty. He was hungry. His shoes were worn out as far as we know because when he came home, his father ordered the servants to bring him new shoes and put them on him. He was in a bad state. But he had a long way to walk home like that. And he had plenty of time to think. Plenty of time to wonder, what reception will I get when I go home? Plenty of time to say, this is useless, I might as well not bother. But he was determined. Otherwise, he wouldn't have made that long journey back. It wasn't an easy road for him, I'm sure. But he was determined. And very often, the road back to God, the way to Christ, is long and difficult. And we must be determined. We must be determined. The gate is narrow, Jesus said. It's not entered easily. There may be things to sort out if we're ever to be saved. If we've wronged people, we may need to put them right. There may be all sorts of difficulties in our way, friends who make fun of us, people who don't understand us, family, perhaps, who turn against us. That's very common in, in Islamic countries, for example. Someone seeks and finds Jesus. They're often ostracized by their, by their whole family. It's difficult, and we need to be determined. Remember Jacob at Peniel, when he was coming to meet his brother Esau, and he met with God, and we're told he wrestled with God all night, and he said to God, I will not let you go until you bless me. Jeremiah said, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. You see the determination. John Bunyan, writer of Pilgrim's Progress, 
sought God for a long time. I think it was about two years he was under conviction of sin before eventually he came to the knowledge of forgiveness. But we must be determined. Men and women, young people, if you're not converted, be determined, be urgent about this. Make that long journey home, however long it takes, until you find forgiveness and peace. Two more short things. The reception he got when he came home. You know the story. His father saw him in in the distance. I think we're meant to assume that the father often looked down that road that the son had gone to see if he was coming back again. One day he saw him, and he ran. Now again, the Pharisees would have been horrified at this. Um, You know it's said of kings and queens that they don't rush. Queens don't rush, they just glide, something like that. Well, in these days, respectable adult men didn't run. In order to run, he would have had to hitch his robes up and tie them around his waist and run perhaps in full view of the neighbors, have them looking at him. Running to fall on the neck of a son who had said to him, I wish you were dead? They would have been amazed. Yet that's what he did. And the son, of course, you remember, began his his repentance speech, Father, I have sinned against heaven and and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He didn't get finishing it. The father stopped him, said to some of the servants who presumably were following, go and get a new robe and put it on him, put new shoes on his feet and a new ring in his hand, and get the fattened calf and kill it, and organize a party. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You see why sometimes it would be better to call this a parable of the amazingly merciful God. Isn't this truly amazing how this son was received? And it's a picture, isn't it, of how God receives truly repentant sinners. Who is a pardoning God like thee? And who has grace so rich and free? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord as this boy did. And he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Abundantly pardon. Isn't it great? Isn't this a wonderful gospel? We thought about his folly. He had some brief rewards for his foolishness. Then there was the turning point, repentance and faith, his determination to go back home and and confess the reception we got home. Lastly, just a word about the older brother. If we're going to call this the parable of the prodigal son, I think we probably would better calling it the parable of two prodigal sons. Because both were in the wrong place at that time. Both were prodigals, as all of we, we all are, and both needed to return. You know, This older son had stayed at home. He appeared to dutifully obey his father, and yet his heart was all wrong. He also needed to confess and seek the mercy of his father. We sometimes think of prodigals as young men, young women, who've gone out into the world and taken to drink and drugs and immorality and all sorts of things. 
thrown up all thoughts of religion, perhaps, that they were brought up with, and they're now out in the world. They're the prodigals. You can be a prodigal and sit in church. You can be a prodigal, like that older son, and stay at home with your heart unchanged. But if we do return, then the dead will be alive again and the lost will be found. Now, this is how the Christian life begins, men and women. This is a, a lovely picture of what happens. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And if we're ever to be saved, we need to know that we are lost. And we need to have that turning point, that radical change where we hold our hands up, confess our sin with a broken heart, and look to Christ and let nothing stop us. Be determined to return to him. And if we do, we'll find a welcoming God. Today thy mercy calls us to wash away our sin. Lovely old hymn. Today thy gate is open and all who enter in will find a father's welcome and pardon for their sin. Past will be forgotten, present joy be, be given, future grace be promised, a glorious crown in heaven. Isn't that a glorious gospel to present to lost sinners? Oh, let's make sure that we know this Savior. Let's bow together for a moment in prayer. Mm -hmm.